0: Hey all this is Design Lota, the podcast where we
1: talk about life as Indian designers. I'm Sushi. And I'm Angie.
0: Our last episode was packed with takeaways on how to create and maintain a killer portfolio and also tips to nail your personal branding.
1: Yes, do go back and
0: listen to our chat with Martijn van den Broek if you haven't already. I love how the internet has made it so simple to continue learning about various subjects through podcasts, videos, blogs. Learning isn't restricted to just school kids and textbooks anymore. You know, Sushi, I feel like school kids are averse to learning as a concept
1: because of those textbooks.
0: Yes, and let me guess, you're going to introduce us to someone who is doing a whole lot to change that.
1: You're right. Um, I caught up with Maidili, the founder of Young Current, and she talks about her journey of curating news and creating a learning experience for kids and young adults. Wow, let's listen in. Hi, Maidili. Thanks so much for joining us on Design Lota. We're so excited about the subject of designing for children. And in your case, it's young adults. What's going on? So what are you up to these days? Hey, uh, thanks for doing this. Um, you know, I
2: think designing for kids and young adults is a topic that deserves a lot more attention. So, you know, thank you for bringing me onto your show to chat about this topic. I am currently running around uh, one year old. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, so that's what
1: I'm up to these days. Okay, if we go back, your story starts with um, psychology, right? So you started uh, uh, with a degree in psychology. So you want to tell us uh, how that went about and what happened after that? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I do still consider myself a student of psychology. There are things
2: that I've learned uh, since then, the user center design, Six Sigma, or even parenting for that matter. There are a lot of things that I've learned from psychology that sort of keep coming back to me when I'm learning these new things. Mm-hmm. What got me interested in psychology? I th- I think... You know, I, I don't think I thought too much about uh, picking psychology at the time. Okay. I really wanted to do uh, do something in English literature, mm. and psychology and political science uh, were were sort of the filler subjects at the time. Okay. I think retrospectively, though, uh, when I think about it, it was an outstanding decision, as you know, the entire experience was was pretty awesome. Um, the reason mm. being, it was I think the first time in in my educational life at the um, so far yeah. i you know i had picked something on my own and i selected everything that i really wanted to study for the next 3 years And um, I was really happy with that, you know. I used to stay back at college, uh, really late. And, you know, I used to love hanging out in the library. It really turned things around for me as a student. Up until that point, I wasn't really a great student
1: at all. So you think it's the subject that kind of pulled you in and uh, made you go a little deeper?
2: I think what really happened
1: at the time was, you know, that mix of English literature,
2: psychology and political science. If you think about those three subjects, they seem like three completely different different uh, three silos but when you actually put them together and you go from one class to another you start seeing patterns and I think Mm. that's really the first time I started seeing patterns in anything um, and really started to enjoy um, the whole experience of of that so you could you could go into an English literature class and read Macbeth and get into a psychology class and you know learn about Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and then you start (laughs) to make those patterns of oh that's part of what uh, you know Lady Macbeth was going through or Macbeth was going through that was that was really exciting for me and to be able to connect that to the politics that were happening at the time and so on, it was it was just amazing, you know? Um, okay. I think every student needs to be able to go through that experience to truly, honestly love what they're studying.
1: I think that's so true. Like, even in design, we, I think, are better for it if we start looking at the transdisciplinary uh, approach, right? Like, how everything is all connected and everything's kind of the light bulb moment that goes off that, oh, that's what's happening here.
2: Absolutely. And, and I'm so glad that a few schools in Finland in the K through 12 are doing this. Um, They're actually looking at transdisciplinary sort of understanding. Uh, We just need to wait and see how the results... uh, They've just started it.
1: So we need to look for data as to what's what's happening there. So after that, we see that, uh, you know, you kind of zeroed in, if I can say, (laughs) a little bit towards uh, education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What caused that shift, if it was a shift?
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Because uh, when I joined Google... The idea was, hey, I'm going to do my my MBA, going to be a manager and so on. (laughs) The interesting thing was that when I joined Google, it sort of opened up this really interesting world to me, uh, which was technology from a user perspective. And uh, being a student of psychology, that was very interesting for me because we had to look at data constantly. But mm. all of this data was really pointing towards behavioral analytics, so to speak, right? Because you're always right. trying to understand what is the customer thinking? What does the customer want here? Right. You know, th- that combination of that psychology and technology was really interesting to me for in those five mm. years. And uh, so I gave up my dreams, so to speak, of MBA because right. that wasn't something that I was interested in anymore because Google had mm. opened up so much more for me what really made me sort of focus in on education was particularly this one thing that I was doing Um, so in my final year at Google my fifth year at Google I Mm -hmm. was uh, doing a side project I was trying to do research on textless literacy for street children and street in Hyderabad at the time um, was something that everyone would see. Something that everyone wanted to do something about, but we just we, we just didn't know what how we could help them. Mm-hmm. It sort of sparked this curiosity towards educational theory and how do students how do how does anyone learn? So now when I combine the HCI uh, interest that I had with the educational theory interest that I had, I started to look at courses that helped me answer those questions. And Harvard had an interesting program at the time and still does. Uh, called Technology, Innovation and Education, which is basically to equip you with the Basic theory of education, mm-hmm. uh, while still you know instilling how technology could be
1: uh, a game changer in the in the whole right. thing. So, uh, what was your course like at AGSC, uh, the technology in education course? If you can tell us a little bit more about uh, what you were learning there. Um, so, it was a it was a great program. Uh, we lovingly
2: call it hugsy uh, okay. because it's AGSC. It's <laughs> <So> very cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like to be cute in our name, but you know we're not so cute when it comes to work. I'm um, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, they have a graduate school of education. They, they have a very uh, balanced focus on theory, research and practice.
1: So uh, at the same time, you had another kind of a research project which you were a part of at mm-hmm. MIT yeah. Media Lab. Was that also centered uh, around education and what was happening there? Uh, I
2: interned at the uh, lifelong kindergarten group um, mm-hmm. and uh, I was working with one of the researchers who was trying to understand how computational thinking or computational Creation occurs in young children at school and at home. So, in formal and informal uh, learning uh, areas. Uh, To that end, we first analyzed the Scratch community and then interviewed a few representative users. So uh, what we did uh, then was to uh, start talking to children and then then to their parents about what do they do on Scratch? How do they uh, solve problems, etc.? Personally, for me, the biggest learning when I was talking to these users is, was how did they do that process of getting unstuck with a problem? And that was really eye-opening for me because I could then take the qual data that I was getting from my uh, interviews with these folks with the mm-hmm. quant data that the researchers at MIT already had. You know, just the process mm-hmm. of interviewing children
0: it's right, right. just
2: accelerating it yeah. um, yeah. it's it comes with its own challenges but it's so exciting when you can get the answers out of
1: it do you find that interesting like when you do qualitative interviews with children do you find that they are less inhibited or they are not so self-conscious so you tend to get more meaningful <laughs> data out of it
2: uh, well the thing is it's not um so here's the thing right there are just like adults children mm. are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so each child differs from the other right. some children are very open and they they sort of give you the answers they mm-hmm. they explain everything around something and mm-hmm. and you know you, you sort of take your answers from that most of the times um, especially with young adults or teenagers mm-hmm. the problem is you'll get monotonous answers even right. if you ask like an open question the mm-hmm. answer is going to be a
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) what do you do with
2: that (laughs) so you'll have to so the challenge there is to sort of frame your question in a way Uh they cannot um you know we talk about open-ended questions in interviewing Mm -hmm. and whatnot but that's just not that's not going to equip you to ask a teenager the question you want and get the answer you want you're just gonna have to get into their shoes and here's the thing be genuinely curious about what what is it that they do Mm -hmm. um if if you are not, you know, genuinely curious, you think you know the answer, mm. um, you're not going to be able to ask the right question and get the right, right answer. Right. I, you know, you're not going to ask the question the way they would like it to be asked so that they could answer. You you know, you go to a student and you say, hey, how was school today? It's it's a close-ended question, right? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, yeah but if you ask them, hey, what was one thing that, was, uh, that really you know made you angry at school today hmm.
0: Hmm. um they
2: might say they might sort of give you like a one sentence answer and you you sort of build your question from there it's hard but you build it over time it's
1: it's, it's a skill that you build over time hmm. so do you think it uh, requires a little bit of a preliminary kind of what do you call it ice breaking or something where they feel like they're okay with talking to you in the first place that's, that's an interesting question um i think when you're interviewing an
2: adult a grown up let's just say a grown up um, I think what happens is that they already know that you're in a sort of a contractual situation right mm. it's an unspoken contract where you're asking the question and they're giving you an, an, an honest answer I, I say honest so doubtingly because it's, it's sometimes it is sometimes it is it isn't mm. right mm. we just need to as as interviewers we just need to figure out which parts are we, we want to take and which which parts we don't want mm. but the, right. the children i think young adults, the the thing is that they're always honest. There are times when they're not so honest about their marks or their education or something. Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to uh, sort of gauge that from what they're saying. But most of the times they're really honest with you because they know that you're a non-threatening individual. You need to sort of be able to sort of uh, set up that trust going um, when you you get in, right? Right. Uh, Sort of say, hey, I'm not going to speak to your teacher after this. I'm not going to talk to your parent after this. Mm. Whatever you say is going to be between the two of us. And I promise that it's not going to go beyond. Mm. And sometimes they believe you, sometimes they don't. But, you know, you've got to to live, live with that.
1: What what were your takeaways from uh, this research project that you did? So, uh, Scratch is basically
2: for those uh, those of you who don't know what Scratch is. It's, it's hmm. basically a community, most importantly, uh, where um, it's uh, from MIT, uh, right? Right. It's from the Lifelong Kindergarten group. Uh, it's from uh, it's, uh, which is part of the Media Lab. Basically, a uh, student is sitting down, or a user is sitting down and sort of uh, uh, building code to make things move the other uh, aspect to scratch is the community aspect to it so we were really focusing on the community aspect of it um and trying to understand um how do you a design something how do you Mm. uh, how do you design a game or how do you do you just go in there and start coding and then uh, start adding pieces to it or do you sit down and write and And Mm. there are both kinds of um people because some users used to sort of sit down and write their code first on the notebook and then go to scratch and actually you know put that code together right. while some others used to just remix what was there and sort of build on top of something else that was already created hmm. um, so they were sort of improving right? right and the particular thing that was really interesting was the getting unstuck Issue, right? Like you, let's say you you've started on something and then you got stuck somewhere. Yeah. Uh, how do you get unstuck with it? Hmm. One of the most interesting answers uh, I I really keep going back to is this one girl who told us how she got unstuck. And there's actually a term for this in uh, in coding too. I mean, it's called uh, the rubber duck uh, phenomena or something. So basically, okay. what what she does is that she caught, uh, when she's stuck. She mm-hmm. takes a break from her computer, goes to her dog, and explains to the dog, "This is <laughs> what happened." Okay. What that does is you ha- you now have an audience member who is not talking back to you, but actually listening.
0: Mm.
2: Um, when she's articulating that problem instead of writing or you know coding, right? Uh, she's actually speaking the problem out. Something basically gets unstuck right right. right. So she she's she's solving that problem because now she knows sometimes mm-hmm. she has she is she's still un, uh, stuck sometimes when after she's spoken to the dog right. but most of the time she solved the problem mm-hmm. uh, which is mm-hmm. interesting because that's how um, uh, grown-ups also solve some of their coding issues. They talk to a, they talk to a rubber duck, and uh, the rubber duck doesn't respond; it just listens uh, with a grin on its face, and <laughs> you solve the problem. So um, that parallel
1: was very interesting for me to see. Yeah, it's really interesting how she came up with a way to kind of work through it. Uh, yeah, right, in her own way. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> So post this, we're going to move to the next huge thing that yeah. you got involved in, which was uh, Young Current. So you want to tell us a little more about how it came about? Uh, Again, I think the story starts with child. Uh, (laughs) um, There was
2: a, I had this neighbor, uh, she was pretty precocious for her age and she, we used to, one of the things we used to do on weekends is read newspapers together Uh, and uh, she enjoyed reading a few articles. She wasn't exactly, you know, the ideal student as her parents put it, but Mm -hmm. she did enjoy reading. At least with me, she did. And uh, she enjoyed reading a few articles uh, from the newspapers that we were reading together. But most of them uh, were just too much for her. Okay. So wh- what I did then was we tried the newspapers for students, which is NIE. For, you mm, know, right. Lots of publishers do this. Um, so uh, schools sort of have this NIE, which is, um, right. which is an edition that they get exclusively mm. for the schools. But there are also these uh, other... Uh, uh, newspapers that or or have yes mm. exactly they have these um newspapers specifically for students mm. and we tried the same sort of thing with them and we ran into the same problem like she really liked reading a few articles uh she just didn't some went completely over her head some she was just bored because she was like oh this is for kids um, <laughs> which is interesting yeah. to hear from a kid but yeah yeah, yeah like you know yeah, this is not. True. Yeah, like you know, this is not mm. something that I would. Read. I I don't want to read this. It's so boring. Mm. Um, you know, uh, maybe I should. I I don't want to read this this particular article. So mm. you know, there was that variation in the same paper. She could look at one article and be very uh, curious about it and read it again and again, but a few mm. articles that she just wouldn't read uh, more than once or wouldn't even read more than halfway through. Then what I did was I started to, since I had known for a little time how she, which articles she liked, we, I started to pick articles that I thought matched her reading ability, okay. you know, her interest levels and hmm. asked her, oh, just read this. Don't read the others. Just read this.
1: Okay. This right? is still really in the physical would... newspaper, right? This is
2: still in the physical newspaper. Yeah, so right? you're yes. just kind
1: of marking out or, you know, yeah, telling Yeah, basically
2: yeah, just read this article and then we'll go on to read this article and then we'll yeah. go on to read this article so on, right? Mm-hmm. And she did. And, you know, eventually we would, uh, she, she, what we, she would do is, like I said, you know, read the, the same article twice because it was interesting. It was, it made her curious and she started to underline the things that she didn't know about and wanted to know more about or highlight mm-hmm. the words that she didn't, that she didn't understand or wanted yeah. to understand. And, uh, you know, we, we th- that sort of was like what, we did in the in the physical world but you know her parents were so happy and about this whole thing that we were doing on the weekends and wanted to continue this somehow. But, you know, we had eventually moved from that house. I I think this this germ sort of stuck. And Hmm. um, as I continued to work with more students at the time with another startup, I saw that regardless of the form of content, be it videos or text or um, games or anything interactive or non-interactive, there were really two kinds of students who were disengaged. Those who are bored by the content and mm-hmm. those who are overwhelmed by it. Okay. Uh, being challenged by the content that you're supposed to read at your you know, at your grade level, meaning something that exactly matches your reading ability and your interest level Mm. was a matter of, became a matter of luck. Right, right. Overwhelmingly, the content that is always put in front of a student, be it in schools or be it in any of these educational apps, so to speak, are not, you know, leveled. They're not leveled to the uh, reading ability or to the interest level of the child. Mm. And personalization was really key. Now, when you put all of these together, you sort of start to think about, okay, personalization is something that I'm trained to solve Mm. uh, as an educational technologist. And if Mm. I had to sort of take that same problem, put the videos and the educational labs and everything aside for a second, think about the the initial problem of, you know, news, Mm. which Mm. students should be reading. How do we make news readable? Was really the sort of question that we were I was basically uh, thinking about at the time Mm -hmm. and personalization solved a huge part of it. The possibilities of automating this entire process of uh, from personalization to a little bit of assessments to a little bit of reporting it was
1: super exciting for me and that's how Young Current was born. So how does this work? How does uh, Young Current work? You know if I'm a student um, Mm -hmm. do I get to know it through my school or do I just generally go and sign up how do my parents do it? Um, so what I've seen is that we've uh, we've seen a lot of um, older students sign up
2: on their own, and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of parents signing up their younger students. Mm-hmm. And most of us, most of them find us through um, an organic search. Yeah, we, we we've been spreading only by word of mouth so far. So uh, one of the things that I uh, I've made sure on Young Current is that we follow COPA, although there is no, absolutely no need for any Indian startup to follow the COPA law. Okay. COPA is basically uh, children online privacy law that, that is in the US, and all the okay. uh, technology companies there are supposed to follow it. But we do it because we we, we see that it's absolutely, uh, it makes sense for mm-hmm.
1: a ch- child's privacy, it makes sense. Um, so we follow that. Mm-hmm. And, this is um, the kind of information you take from a child, right? Uh, so this is something that almost every
2: education technology app needs to look at privacy laws and this so this uh, goes from the point of signing up Mm-hmm. To actually, you know, if they want to delete their account, to forgetting their uh, their data, basically. So um, it's it's got to do with the stru- the st- how you structure your uh, product itself. In terms of you know the uh, articles that they see and whatnot. So we aggregate them from publishers who we know are writing student safe and child safe articles, mm-hmm. and uh, then we segregate them. Um, based on their reading ability okay so meaning how we do that is that we take each article and an algorithm sort of looks at each article and says okay this article is can be re- is readable by most 12th graders mm-hmm. and this article is readable for most 6th graders mm-hmm. um now that's happening in the back end right? right on the front end what's happening is you can come in and sign up and say hey i'm from i'm, I'm a sixth grade student and will set you up with 6th grade content. But what the machine is eventually going to do is try to gauge uh, which grade level you're actually from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And that's a moving target, right? Because you you might be seventh, 6th grade today, but you might right. actually graduate to 7th grade by tomorrow hmm. um, and 8th and maybe even come back to 7th at some point in time yeah. because you've just not been eating enough or so on and so forth. And the machine tries to understand that from your behavior and um, it matches the content to your reading ability rather than your grade level that you've given us. And, you know, there are these additional things that we do, which is vocabulary building Mm. and passive writing that we let the students do and whatnot. You know, that's that's really how it works. You come, you sign up and you start reading news that's at your grade level. Mm. But at the same time, the focus is also on uh, building your uh, vocabulary skills and building your writing skills and so on. So what's your user base like? In terms of geography? Yeah, it's pretty varied. We see a lot of folks from, uh, definitely a lot from India because word of mouth really has been spreading in India. But a considerable amount of uh, our users do come from the US. Canada, or Australia, we have a few. Uh, the I think the third biggest uh, geography that we see um, users coming from is China. okay, um, And quite a few from Korea as well yeah it's it's pretty varied in that but you can you can already see a pattern right as to yeah. you know who's interested in this it's basically those who are who are learning english as a second language mm. and and you know want to keep up with news and so on um so we do we go to publishers who independent or you know big conglomerates who basically are um publishing news specifically for children okay okay. so and and that was the initial problem that we were struggling with when we first started out one Mm -hmm. of the research questions that i was asking myself was how do you create this content yeah um and there are equivalents of you know products like young current in in the other parts of the world like in the us there there are other uh, folks who are doing um similar things Mm -hmm. but they have an army of uh, editors and content writers yeah. sitting down and writing this content. Mm. And at least to begin with, to mm. test, test this idea, yeah. uh, we sort of say, hey, first let's aggregate this. Mm. You know, once we see some kind of uh, validation for the uh, idea that we have, let's then look at creating content. yeah Even for us to validate, we started to aggregate and that's when I found out that there's a whole bunch of content hmm. written from across the world hmm. by publishers who are writing specifically for children. Okay. Um, and, and it's just not spokesmen. reaching those. Uh, it's just
1: exactly. It's, Especially it's just. Especially places like India and you
2: uh, China. Yeah, also. I mean, if, if you're a parent and you're looking for child safe news. Mm. It's very hard for you to follow 15 different websites and yeah. then pick the right article yeah. from each website that matches your child's ability. Mm. And then actually go on to assess the child's vocabulary skills mm. and so on and so forth. A, as a parent, it's just hard. Yeah. Even as a teacher, mm. right? As a teacher, it, it becomes even even harder yeah. because you have materials and multiple yeah. classes and so on. Really, that's the problem we're solving. We're aggregating all of this content from publishers that you probably didn't even know exist mm. um, but publishers willing to share this news and willing to want you to read this news because in India for example uh, the people that we've partnered with are physical newspaper uh, partners so basically these are folks who are private citizens who are s- are so interested in solving this problem mm-hmm. that they've uh, started a physical uh, newspaper that they send out to the student okay. uh, if they subscribe to it right mm-hmm. so what I've done is hey why don't you share some of your news with us and- we will publish it for you and they've they've been more than happy and they've been really so approachable and so good about this whole thing instead of saying hey what's in it for me right they've been yes let's do this because this is the exact same problem that we're trying to solve Mm -hmm. um so um,
1: you know that's that's what we've been seeing If we can be, if you can be a little more specific about the scene in India, because you worked with a couple of startups here, right? Especially in the Mm -hmm. field of technology and education. What are the things you learned about how kids here interact with technology? Mm. You know, any particular insights? It's a huge spectrum, right? Mm. Any
2: demography that you touch, it's a huge spectrum. And the same uh, is for students In, in a country like India or any developing nation for that matter. The wide demography of kids and young adults really fall under either with those, either those with easy access to tech and those with limited or no access to tech at all. Mm in india i have had the opportunity to work with both groups you know those who have three uh, different uh, devices mm-hmm. at home um, and access them pretty regularly and those who really they, their only access point to a device is at a computer lab once in a week at their school yeah. or or at a video game center that is that they need to save up for to go to yeah. each week yeah what i've seen is that the ones with access to tech use it sophisticatedly right they know mm-hmm. they know how to sort of use it to the uh, to their convenience, and they and they they definitely take it for granted. Yeah, uh, with those who have no access to it or limited access to tech interact with tech -tech differently based on their age if i had to look at those with no access then i would sort of uh, divide them up again by their age and what i've seen there is the younger ones are more curious Hmm. they're they're trying to understand oh what does this button do oh what do i do when what happens when i do this the older ones are are a little more hesitant Mm -hmm. but most of these uh, be it young or old they're just willing to learn Technology has this novelty factor, right? This is the other thing that a lot of us tend to get wrong. When you see a lot of uh, students with no access interact with technology and uh, you put a couple of educational videos in front of them and they start looking at those, we tend to think that they're actually learning from this. Mm. That... Technology is now a game changer and it's going to change how these kids, um, they're going to learn every topic under the sun just because it's now a new thing and they're going to learn from it. Yeah, That's not how it happens. And, mm. and a lot of us who've been in education research, uh, especially with this demography,
0: understand
2: this. Technology is a novelty factor. It sort of wears out pretty easily Uh, and pretty fast. So even hmm. if I've been a user who's uh, only had interaction with uh, tech once in a week or once in two weeks, Hmm. and I've been given this opportunity to use a device at the same amount of time or even for an increased amount of time, Mm -hmm. I will be excited by it for the first few weeks. Right, right. After that, it sort of wears off, and mm. you know the same rules apply. If the video is boring, it'll bore me, yes. and it'll bore uh, someone who has a uh, who has access to tech. It'll bore someone who has no access to tech, right, or has limited
1: access to tech. So the tech becomes that, kind of irrelevant or kind of invisible, right? Exactly. Because the exactly. Content kind of it's, is it's it's not speaking
2: to the person, mm-hmm. right? Then is when you can actually start comparing results between these two yeah. groups, yeah. Here's the thing, right? I mean, it's hard to predict right now what what the central idea is going to be for EdTech. I think video has had its time uh, and data sort of clearly mm. says how much a video can do because it's, again, a non-interactive thing. And EdTech has always been about interaction. If there's no interaction, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of passive learning and passive learning really doesn't go too far. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we're finally going to have some interesting mm-hmm. and important conversations about EdTech now that video can
1: move on. <laughs> so what's your take on uh, stuff like tutorials and uh, these massive online courses, you know, any comment on what's happening in that space? So when MOOCs first came out, it was really exciting
2: as an, as an educational technologist, it was really exciting to sort of uh, see the whole world excited about it, right? You soon realize that like, this goes back to um, some of the basic principles or fundamentals of psychology, right? You know, motivation. And where does that come from? Is that int- intrinsic or extrinsic? And learning really depends on the on w- where that motivation comes from. And uh, if you think about MOOCs, Common Sense predicts that this the, the signing up and registering for it and trying to learn is a very intrinsic, intrinsically motivation motivated learning right but if you look at how many people have actu- actually mm. you know, finished a course mm. or graduated from it the numbers are disappointing and uh, that's what makes you start questioning was it really intrinsically motivated, right. motivated from the beginning how many of these were curious how many of these were uh, intrinsically motivated but still not that was not fuel mm. yes. enough for them to actually finish so you know at the end The time MOOCs are going to be helpful for a set of people, and they've always been right. MOOCs is open courseware, has always been there. People have used Mm. courseware for a long time now, people have formalized it they have formalized this process. They've started to put mm-hmm. more resources on it. They've started to track data of that. Uh, they've tried to. They've started to make mm-hmm. micromasters yeah. and uh, things like that that actually turn into things useful, useful and tangible things that you could take for right. uh, into your professional life and so on. But the concept yeah. of open courseware has always been there. In that sense. You know, MOOCs, like I said, will continue to serve a a group of people. It's not going to change education. It's not going to disrupt education Mm. uh, fundamentally.
1: What do you have to say about parents in this whole scenario? We've been talking a lot about students, you know, anything you learned about the behavior of parents that informed your product
2: yeah as as a user researcher you basically do have to look at the entire ecosystem of the child um, yeah. uh, in educational terms as the and brenners ecosystem that you look at parents are the next thing that you observe right after you look at the uh, at your learner or the, the user and parents and teachers and care caretakers, these are the folks that we, we try to observe or learn their behavior of when mm-hmm. we're trying to design a product because that's what makes educational products a little more complicated than most other products because there are a lot of stakeholders involved. Mm-hmm. You're not just designing for the student but you're also keeping in mind the parent because ultimately they are the customer. Your user is different, but your customer is different and so on. But you have to be able to sort of align goals that match both the user and the uh, customer. Hmm. And in this case, most of the times, the goals of a student and the goals of a parent are are at opposite ends, so to speak. (laughs) Okay. right most of the times that's the case because yeah. the student is always like oh i want to have fun i want to i, I want this to be fun right. and the parent is like enough of fun i just need him to learn english or i just need him to learn math and so on yeah yeah i mean there are a few products that claim to put those two together but most of the times it's very hard to do that right so yeah i mean uh, to answer your question we do observe uh, parents and we do observe their behavior with young current specifically we one of the examples uh, that i could talk about is probably how we've asked parents, hey, um, do you, like, initially when we were doing uh, research to validate the idea, we were asking them, hey, do you want your ch- kids to read news? And they'd be like, yes, we wa- we do want them to read news, we do want them to understand and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But as we launched the product and as, and as we spoke to parents a lot more, um, when we started to speak a little more to them, one of the things that s- started to become clear to me was that they wanted them to read news, mm-hmm. but they're, A primary goal was really to build an understanding in English.
1: Ah, okay.
2: Whether or not the child understood the concept that was being uh, talked about in the article, Mm. whether or not the child can now tell you a little bit about SpaceX or Tesla or whatever the news that they were reading about, they didn't really care that much about. Mm. Mm. They really focused, Their primary goal was, hey, how many, how many words, how many new words has he learned from reading that article? Mm. Hmm. And can he now give me the meanings of these words? Okay. So okay. for the child, it's 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 like a, at least the first time they read the article, um, it's like oh now I've learned a new thing about SpaceX. I've learned yeah. about this new guy called Elon Musk. Yeah. Uh, which is I mean, which is valuable learning, yeah. right? Right there.
1: And it's going to make but them the, read more, right? Because that's what that's right, what addicted right. to stuff, right? Like when we were kids, we used to like the content, and that's when we went exactly. back. Exactly.
2: Mm. Right and and that's the hope to get them hooked on first and Mm. then think about vocabulary and whatnot. But a parent necessarily doesn't think of it that way. Mm. I'm not saying all parents do this. There there will be exceptions of parents who will be like, yeah, no, I'm interested in the news and that's what it is. Yeah. But you know, uh, at the end of the day, the majority of the parents are. If if my child is spending half an hour on this website or on Mm. this app, how much has he learned? How many words has he learned? Mm-hmm. So it, it really comes down to that. So I think it's it's a fine balance that you need to strike when you are uh, creating tech products because there are so many of these stakeholders and, and most of the times there are different spectrums of the needs.
1: So uh, I recently read your article about how you afforded yourself a maternity leave. Uh, which was interesting, mm-hmm. especially interesting to me because I uh, also became a new mom last year. So, yeah, I won't ask you if life has changed. I know absolutely <laughs> that it does. Um, but it, has it ap- changed your approach to designing for children in any way? And also, if you can talk a little bit about that article that you wrote.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, congrats to you too. because, you know, <laughs> thank you. Becoming a, parent is, becoming a parent changes your perspective on a lot of things, mm-hmm. I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was oblivious to this fact, but now I have like all of this understanding of what other parents go through and whatnot. Oh man, yes,
1: yeah, <laughs> it's all true. All the cliches are true. Is what I'm starting uh, yeah. to <laughs> find out. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, and um, so yeah, to answer your question though, right? I mean, yeah. I think uh, this this will sound very preemptive of me mm-hmm. uh, um, I think I guess when I started down the road of Ette I convinced myself that i would be designing products that my children will someday use mm. it's it's a very romantic thought right mm. uh, in one of uh, so Salkan wrote this book about you know how he started out and whatnot, and that's something that he mentions too in his book you know uh, I hope to make sure to create a product that my children will use someday mm. and then I read there I was like yes of course we all do that right we, yeah. uh, we all want have something for our children but you know the more grown-up version of me of course now believes that it is not just up to me to do that mm-hmm. or which is, is not just up to Khan to do that which is why i take every opportunity to speak with any edtech designer who's willing to listen to share the lessons that i've learned Because we have to, as a community, learn from each other to be able to design the best products for all of our children. Um, To answer your specific question, though, you know, has it changed my approach to designing for children? I think I'm absolutely okay with the user researcher in me influence the parent
0: Hmm. that
2: I am. Hmm. Uh, Meaning inform my, my data, my qual and quant data inform me as a parent as to how children behave. Yeah. but i don't think i'm okay with uh the parent in me influencing the designer or the researcher yeah. because what happens then is because i have anecdotal data
0: mm.
2: right it's mm. not backed with numbers as ruthless as it may sound it, it changes i mean as being a parent makes you cautious yeah but it shouldn't change the way you design i think yeah. uh, the only things that should help you design better are still you know you hmm. still need to go by data that you collect or, hmm. uh, or data that you can trust. So okay. I think that's my approach, um, when it comes to designing the children.
1: For any of our listeners who are interested in especially this field of designing for children, for young adults, any references that you would suggest for them to go over? Yeah, um,
2: biggest suggestion is go look at all the apps that have been that are being created for mm. kids these days. A hmm. uh, lot of them are just outright, they they have like Comic Sans as, <laughs> as their font, okay. and, you know. I mean some of them you can just ignore Mm. but there are a few that that are interesting and are doing interesting things Mm. Um, have a long way to go but still like for example YouTube Kids I think um, Mm. uh, is an interesting sort of they they started from an interesting place and Mm. I think they have a if they play it right, it could be pretty huge. Mm-hmm. And there are other apps, similar apps that for kids that have a very heavy interactive part to them. And that's pretty uh, exciting for any tech designer. Mm-hmm. But I think um, specific resources, I think one um, one really good book I've read recently uh, that sort of puts everything to think of when you're designing mm-hmm. in a sort of a neat checklisty way is um, mm-hmm. designing for kids. Design for Kids, rather by Deborah Gelman. Okay. You know, if you're a if you're a beginner, it puts everything in a, in that checklist that you have to sort of check off when you're designing. Okay. Um and mm-hmm. and she gives a lot of uh, good uh, references to research that's been done about how from everything from you know how children pick their usernames to how privacy matters to them how trust matters to them and so on and so forth so yeah that's a great book there's also uh, a great UX researcher um, called Trine Falb Uh, I hope i am saying her last name right Uh, she is someone I've come to know and whose work I've had I have great respect for and she also has a few articles on designing for kids I've had the opportunity to basically speak with her and get her critique on young current and mm-hmm. she's quite approachable on twitter um, okay and uh, she's been one of the one of the really great advisors at, at young current for us so she's another person to follow if you are designing for kids or okay. if you need like a good critique for your product she's she's great too
1: i think we link um, her uh, yeah. twitter uh, this has been so much fun and so insightful uh, maiduli thank you so much for doing this so where can people find you and young current um, yeah, so YoungCurrent Current is uh, youngcurrent.com Y-O-U-N-G-C-U-R-R-E-N-T
2: dot com um, and I'm, you can you can reach me on Twitter, I'm at uh, MYD Okay um, I'm sure you'll link them up somewhere Yeah, I will, I will. Uh, People could tweet at me and you know, I'm more than happy to answer any more questions that they might have but this was super fun <laughs> uh, on, a, on an early Saturday morning I think it's make, made my weekend, so thank you for doing this
0: That was a really refreshing discussion. Design being the little bee that cross-pollinates across so many disciplines never stops surprising me.
1: Yes, uh, interesting how even Maidili observed patterns across disciplines during her education and this led her to create the same experience for children.
0: Of course, psychology is something that is deeply intertwined with every kind of design, whether it's a choice of color or placement of an object or even research methods. Speaking of research methods, I like what she said about how being genuinely curious
1: is a solid user interview technique. I think it would work for all ages. Yeah,
0: especially with young adults, genuineness seems to be the key to building trust and getting them to be more open. It's funny how open-ended questions don't really open them up. And (laughs) I feel to an extent this applies to adults as well. I mean, which of us has ever known what to say when someone says... What's up? (laughs) What's up, (laughs) Angie? Yeah, doesn't work. I've drawn a blank. (laughs) Okay, how about this? What do you think about bias transferring from one role to another, like parent to researcher or vice versa? Okay,
1: now that's more specific. I personally think it's very difficult to compartmentalize since design has trained us to watch out for those connections, right?
0: I feel it comes with experience to be able to notice the connections, but discern whether they should or should not influence our design decisions. Ultimately, it boils down to what the user's goals are. And in some cases, like in education, the goals for the teacher or
1: parent differ from the goals for the student. And it's necessary to recognize that distinction and also educate the users to help them mutually align their goals. That
0: way, everyone's dreams are fulfilled.
1: You know, I saw a quote by the children's book author, Judy Bloom. She says, uh, when you're writing for kids, we're not an adult telling a story about being a kid. We are that kid. Hmm. And uh, I really think that's the perfect attitude to have when uh, designing for children.
0: Yes, that mindset of, I'm not better than you. I'm just trying to understand you. It can really build trust and also bring out valid insights. Hey, listeners. Have you had the pleasure of designing for children? Or was it not a pleasure? We'd love to hear that story too. (laughs) Tweet to us at designlota and tell us. You can find the transcript and references for this episode and all our other episodes at designlota.com. Join us next time. We're going to talk about designers and the tools of their trade. Until then, bye.
1: Bye.